Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word to us. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Thanks for being with us. If we have not had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It'd be great to meet you after the service. Um, hey, I'm excited about today. Maybe you're with us and you were invited along by a friend, or maybe this is your first time back in church after a while, and you're, you're reading some of the stuff that we just recited as we baptized people, and you're hearing some of the songs, and you're like, man, I don't know about where I'm at with any of this. And I just want to say, if that's you, welcome to you. It's an honor to have you. Uh, we do not claim to have all the answers, but we are committed to wrestling with some of these claims that Jesus has made with you. So if you want to get coffee or if you want to process that at any point, we would love to do that. It's good to have you with us today. We hope today is really helpful for you. Uh, Man, I'm really excited about today. So here's what we're going to do just to give you a little bit of a roadmap before we jump in. Um, We are pausing today on our our series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you know anything about what we do, we like to take books of the Bible and slowly work our way through them. We've been doing that with this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We've been in this letter for like over 30-something weeks, and we're going to wrap up in August at some point. But today what we want to do is press pause and focus in on something else. Every July as a church, we enter into a really unique, special season for us where we talk about and ask you as covenant members to renew your covenant membership with Frontline. So we are a a church that values membership. We don't believe that just attending on Sundays is nearly what Jesus had in mind when he talked about uh, the church and when he talked about the people of God. 
And we actually believe that to do any of the stuff that the New Testament says that you and I are called to do, it requires being actually committed to a local church with real pastors, with real deacons, with real people that you can look in the eyes and say, you, I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to carry out the one another commands of scripture with you. I'm going to bear your burdens. I'm going to, I'm going to keep you accountable. I'm going to submit my life to this church, to these people. I'm going to follow these pastors, these elders. That's what we do every July is ask you to renew. So that's coming up. We'll talk more about that at our members meeting and in the days and weeks to come. If you're not a member, we can answer more questions about why we value membership. But what I want to do today is just pause and try to show you what we're fighting for as a church. I want to show you what our hope is, what our desire is, what our, what our driving ambition is as a church at Frontline, what we're trying to fight for. So that's why we're in Matthew 5 today and thinking about this idea of covenant church membership. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to pray for us and then we will jump in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Matthew 5. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen. I've got mine. I'll read from mine. So let me pray for us real fast. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather with the people of God to watch the, the miracle of you bringing dead hearts to life, that we get to celebrate people replacing their old identity with this new identity that you've given them, that their whole life is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus. And I, I pray today that that would capture our imagination. I pray that your church would be captured by what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a follower of Jesus. So would you shape us? Would you move us? meet with us in all the ways that we need it. And for my friends in the room that are, maybe whether they realize it or not, are actually on the outside and they feel like they're looking in, I pray that they would experience your invitation, that you would pull them in and that you would draw their heart to yourself. Do this today by your power, through your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, could you imagine, could you just imagine waking up and having no idea who you are? Waking up and having no memory of your family history, your identity, where you came from, I mean, all gone. Can you imagine that? On February 28th of 2013, there was an unconscious man who was found in Palm Springs, California. He was at a motel there, and he was later identified as 61-year-old Michael Boatwright. He happened to be a Florida resident and a Navy veteran, but the only problem was that what I just described happened to him. He woke up and had no memory of who he was. Couldn't remember anything about himself. Couldn't remember his name. Couldn't remember where he was from. Couldn't remember his family. Literally complete amnesia at every level. Except for the fact, and this is bizarre but true, that he kept referring to himself with this name, Johan Eck, and instead of speaking English, he was speaking Swedish. This is a true story. Uh, imagine waking up in a motel room and you don't remember who you are, you're an American, you're a Navy vet, and now you're like, no, I'm Swedish, and you're only speaking Swedish, and you're operating under a different name. That's this guy's story. Complete loss of identity, complete loss of where he came from, who his family was, what he was doing, on all of it, completely gone. So what happened is they evaluated him for five months at this facility, and kind of Nothing changed as they watched this guy. And like, yeah, he thinks he's Swedish and he thinks his name is Johan Eck. So this is, this is true. Um, the, the Riverside County Department of Mental Health relocated him to Sweden. 
and he became a private tennis coach in Sweden. That's a bizarre story, and I'm sure that raises more questions for you than it does like give clarity, but if you're like, why are you telling me this weird story that I'm definitely going to Google later? Um, I know you are. I did too. It's fine. Here's, here's why. Because that, that type of amnesia, though probably not like for many of us a physical threat, there is such a thing as spiritual amnesia. There is such a thing as waking up as a follower of Jesus, but forgetting who you are, forgetting what God in Christ has done for you, forgetting where you came from and what in Christ he's done to give you a totally different identity as a part of his kingdom living in a different way in the world. There's a way of living in this world as a follower of Jesus where you just forget who we are in Christ. And I don't know if you feel this, but I feel this on a day-to-day level. And specifically, one of the greatest threats that we face, if you're a Christian, one of the greatest threats that we face is living in this world in such a way where the good life that the world holds out to us, this vision of what should be desired, of the blessed life, starts to creep into our bones. And you just don't even realize it. You just wake up one day loving and longing what the world offers more than what Jesus and the kingdom offers. Desiring what the world offers thinks is uh, where we find satisfaction and joy and pleasure and meaning more than what Jesus has to say about those things. Amen? Do you feel this as a Christian? This tension, this pull, this spiritual amnesia that sets in? Well, here's something really interesting. The Sermon on the Mount, what we're reading from today and looking at together today, is not only the most important sermon that Jesus ever preached, let that sit in, that Jesus preached sermons, and this happens to be the most important teaching that he ever gave. So it's not only the most important sermon that Jesus had to to preach, but it's the most important sermon that has ever been preached in the history of any sermons in the world. And specifically what Jesus is going to do in this is sort of give us his vision for what it means to be a Christian. In Oklahoma, this is really hard because a lot of people consider themselves to be Christians or assume that because they believe in Jesus and believe that he died on a cross and believe that he rose from the dead on the third day, that they're automatically Christians. But there's nothing about their way of life that is in line with the teachings of Jesus. And this is Jesus essentially saying, if you want to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to know what it is to be a Christian, here it is. Let me lay out life in the kingdom of God, life for my followers as I've intended it to be. And specifically what he's going to touch on today is this bizarre understanding of what it is to live the good life, what it is to live the ideal life, what it is to be blessed or to live the blessed life. Now, what do you think of when you think of being blessed? What comes to mind? Well, I did like a quick social media search, and here's what our culture tends to think of when we think of the blessed life. Uh, I ordered four crispy chicken strips from the airport McDonald's and got five. So blessed, right? Hard to argue with that logic. Uh, Dream car at 19, hashtag blessed. This one's my favorite. 345 pounds is my new squat max. The man above is crazy when he by your side. Hashtag blessed. Thank you, Jesus, for helping this man's squat max. Jesus really cares about squat maxes, right? He was helping this guy. Uh, my flight to Chicago this morning isn't full and the seat next to me is empty. Hashtag blessed. Does that ever happen to you? You're just like, praise him, praise him, right? It's like even with the extra seat, it's not enough space on the stupid airplane. Uh, I got accepted into graduate school today with scholarships that literally made my month. Hashtag blessed. My first follower on Twitter, thankful and <laughs> blessed. 
your first follower doesn't care about that tweet, but that's fine. Here's my point. Here's my point that in our culture, and often even you and I tend to think of being blessed as the same thing as being lucky, being fortunate. Good things tend to happen to you. To be blessed is to be accepted on a cultural level. It's to have wealth. It's to have success, money, new cars, whatever. It's to be blessed is like, I got that new job, or I asked that girl out and she said yes, or these fortunate events occurred in my life, whatever it is. But we tend to think of being blessed in those categories, right? This is what our world holds out to offer you and I as the blessed life, the life to desire the good life. But interestingly, Jesus has a very, very different list. Look at this with me in Matthew 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, here's what's challenging about this word blessed or blessed. It's makarios in Greek, and there is no immediate English equivalent to this word. Some translations say blessed or blessed. Some translations say happy. Some say flourishing. But there's no direct word that really fits the description of exactly what makarios means. It's, it's sort of like, hey, here's someone that you should envy. Here's a portrait of the life that you should long for. Here's the good life. Here's the, the life to desire. This was a word that when someone would get married or have a baby or have a fortunate event happen to their life, you would say, makarios are you. That's what the word means. It's like blessed, happy. And yet Jesus here is saying, happy are those who mourn. Blessed are those who get persecuted and have people utter horrible things about you that are not actually true all on the account of being a Christian. Happy are the ones, blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. This list doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It doesn't seem like that's the good life. seems like this is a life that you and I would not want to sign up for at any cost. So how is it that these people on this list are in any way considered blessed? Well, a couple of things to keep in mind as we kind of work our way through this. The first is remember what the Beatitudes are not, what these list of blessings are not. They are not entry-level requirements for you and I to become Christians. Jesus is not saying, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to be meek. You have to be ones who have certain people say horrible things about you on my account. You have to be the ones who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. He's not saying this is the, the bar that you have to clear in order to become a Christian. That's not what they are. These are not entry-level requirements. So what are they? Well, to understand what they are, it's important to remember the context in which Jesus is, is speaking this sermon. Just like in our day, in Jesus' day, people had a list of things that they considered to be the blessed life, the good life, the, the life to desire. And specifically, a couple of hundred years before Jesus even entered the scene, uh, there was a, a guy named Sirach 
who in 200 BC wrote this that sort of summed up the common Jewish understanding of what the good life was, what the desired life was, what the the life that you and I should be striving after was. Here's what he says. He says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and and tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with the ox and ass together. That always drives me crazy too. When I do that, I'm so glad I don't have to do that one anymore. Um, Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now, there's some good stuff in here, I think, but the basic teaching here is that here's the vision of the blessed life. Here's the life that you should desire. You're basically this. You're a man. You're married to a sensible wife. You've got kids, and your kids are obedient, and they're well-respected, which is good for you. You've got people that hang on your every word. You have people that look at you, and there's, there's a level of respect that's garnered. There's a level of appreciation for you that's garnered. You don't ever have to serve someone who's an inferior to you, but rather the blessed life is to have people who are inferior to you serving you as the superior. This is the the life that you should long for. And yet Jesus enters the scene and he blows that whole thing up with his own list of beatitudes. Now I want you to notice specifically who Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter five. Look at verse one, look at this. Seeing the what, and you can respond back. Seeing the what? The crowds. He went up On the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Who are these crowds? Who who, who are these mass of people that Jesus is seeing when he rolls into his teaching on the Beatitudes? Well, the chapter right before tells us, a, a few verses before this, we find out a little bit about who these crowds are. This matters. This is important. Look at chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And look at this. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The sick, those afflicted with various diseases and illnesses, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, the poor, those are the people that Matthew is classifying as the crowds that are following Jesus. These are the people that Jesus sees, and then he goes up on the mountain specifically to address the crowds and his disciples in light of that. And and, and so here's the first thing that I want you to see. These beatitudes, I want you to think of them as kingdom reversals, kingdom reversals. What I mean is that this is the start of the good news, that Jesus is showing up on planet earth and he's not coming to the people that feel like they're at the top. He's not coming to the people that feel like they've got it all together. He's not coming to the people that are like, oh, I'm not poor in righteousness. I've got all the righteousness that I need. I've got all the stuff that I need. I'm doing just fine. Jesus instead is coming to those at the bottom, 
He's coming to the poor. He's coming to the paralyzed. He's coming to epileptics. He's coming to the demon oppressed. He's coming to people that are sick in their bodies. He's coming to people that don't have anything to offer, the ones that our society would say, you're at the bottom. You're at the very, very bottom. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed if you're at the bottom. Why? Because what Jesus is doing as the king is he's actually entering into this world to reverse those people's positions so that those who are spiritually bankrupt, those that stand before God and like, I don't have anything to offer God. Jesus is saying, well, now you do because I'm reversing your position. And though you are dead and spiritually bankrupt, I'm making you alive and I'm giving you my righteousness as a gift. You're sick. I'm going to bring healing to your body. You, you, don't have, you, you lack what the world is saying you need. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to meet you in your lack. Friends, these beatitudes, these blessings, these are gospel announcements to those at the bottom. If you're here today and you feel like you're at the bottom, you're, you're looking at your life and you're like, man, you have no idea the level of brokenness, uh, dysfunction in my life. I've done more wrong than I've done right. I screw up more times than I get it right. If that's your story, Jesus is loudly saying in Matthew 5, you can be blessed in him. You can be blessed. How amazing is that? John Stott says this. He says, thus, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were so rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword. But listen, but publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry out for, to God for mercy and he heard their cry. Here's what it is to be a Christian. We are in this room. We are gathered together each Sunday, not because we offered anything meaningful to God at all, Instead, we had nothing to offer. We just simply cried out to God in mercy. And guess what God did? He heard our cry and he responded. He rescued us out of death into life. We are now experiencing the reversal of Jesus's grace where we were spiritually bankrupt and now we have his righteousness. But here's the terrible reality is that spiritual amnesia sets in. If you're a Christian, this is the threat that you hear that story and you grow tired of it or you grow bored of it or it doesn't sound exciting anymore and you're, you're actually like, no, I don't feel like I'm spiritually bankrupt. I actually have all I need. I'm doing just fine. And here's the danger that you and I face living anywhere, but specifically living in America, is that over time what can happen is just like that guy we talked about there can be this amnesia that sets in where we forget that what we really need is God and his kingdom. What we really need is these kingdom reversals in our life. And instead we grow comfortable in the life that you and I can just acquire in our own strength and power. Well, I've got money. I'm doing fine. I've got a job. I'm doing okay. I've got relationships. I've got good things happening. I've got vacations coming up. I don't need God anymore. And what happens over time is you get so full on this world that you have no more hunger for Jesus and the world that he is bringing to us. And here's what's crazy. What would you think of as the opposite of being blessed? Just guess. What would you think of as the opposite of being blessed? Being cursed? That's what I would think. But 
Jesus says something very different in the same Sermon on the Mount, but taken from Luke's gospel, where he says the opposite of living the blessed life is living a life of woe. And instead of giving blessings, Jesus there gives some woes. Notice what he says in Luke 6. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. Hey, if you want the kingdom without the king, if you want the good life, the blessed life, but you don't want that life as defined by Jesus, America is a great place for you. You can just kind of go through the motions and over time you'll become so full. And here's what I want you to realize is don't slip into spiritual amnesia. Don't let these woes become your reality. This is what Jesus is inviting us into is to be awake and thoughtful about this. So that's the first thing I want you to see is that actually these blessings, they're for the people that lack. They're for the people at the bottom. They're for the ones that cry out to God in mercy and have nothing apart from him. Second thing I want you to see is that these beatitudes are not just kingdom reversals, but they're also kingdom ethics. They're also kingdom ethics. I want you to notice again who Jesus is offering this teaching to. Right? Look again at verse one. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, who came to him? His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. So who is Jesus addressing everything that he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount to? Not to the crowds, but to his disciples, to people who have raised their hand and said, I'm following Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting in Matthew's gospel is he's always differentiating between the crowds and the disciples, the crowds and the disciples. The crowds are just people that are around, that want to see a miracle, that want to see what Jesus is up to, that maybe want to sit in and hear one of his teachings. But the disciples are different than the crowds because they're not just around, but they're actually saying, no, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to live my life based on his teaching. I want to experience the realities that he's describing in my life. I'm submitted to him at every level. He now is my fullest identity. I'm his disciple, right? So this is who Jesus is offering this to. And what Jesus goes on to do with his beatitudes is not just kingdom reversals, but now what he's doing is, hey, when you become a Christian, here are the ethics of the kingdom. Or here's another way to say it. Here's the way to live as Jesus has called you to live. This is the way of Jesus in the world. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, I'm gonna just briefly go through each of these Beatitudes again. And I want you to hear each one of them as an invitation to you to be shaped and formed into this ethic. Jesus is handing you an ethic here that he wants you and I to be shaped and formed into. Verse three says, the poor in spirit. To live in the way of Jesus starts by looking within ourselves and seeing our spiritual bankruptcy. We look within ourselves and we don't see anything worthy. We don't see anything to offer. We only see our spiritual bankruptcy and our need for forgiveness and grace that only God alone can offer. Hey, poor in spirit, this is an ethic that we're getting shaped by where never ever do we arrive at this place in our life where like we have what it takes. It's like, man, I, I need the grace of God in my life. Number, or verse four, rather, those who mourn. And to be a follower of Jesus means 
that we actually are not just carrying our own sorrows, the things that bring tears to our own eyes, but actually looking around at the covenant community of the people of God, and we carry other people's sorrows with us. When other people are mourning, we're mourning with them. We're bearing their burdens. Verse 5, he talks about the meek. Frederick Bruner translates this word as the little people, or people whose attitude is not arrogant or oppressive, those who don't throw their weight around, those who are not clutching for power. Christians are defined by, are shaped by this ethic of being the meek in the world. Does that describe your behavior? Does that describe the way that you're seeking to live in this world? Those who are little in the eyes of the world, the meek. Verse six, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The way of Jesus is to actually be hungry and thirsty to both be right with God and to live righteously before God. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness because guess what? We don't have it in ourselves. That's what it means to be hungry for something. Right now, in this very moment, I'm hungry for street tacos. It's because I don't have street tacos. If I had street tacos, I would not be hungry for them. But we, we long for stuff that we don't have. Jesus is saying the way of Jesus in the world is that we're hungry, we're thirsty to live righteously before God. That's, that's what drives us. That's how we are, shape our ethic in the world is, is, is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Is that, is that true of you? Verse seven, the merciful, the merciful. The way of Jesus is the way of mercy towards everyone in our lives, even our enemies. Friends, I just want to point this out. Like, outrage culture is not compatible with the way of Jesus. If you sit on the edge of your seat constantly waiting for someone to say something that is going to offend you, having an easily offendable heart where you're always looking to disagree, always looking to outrage, always looking to respond and and prove why you're right and other people are wrong and, and always lash out in anger, that is not compatible with the way of Jesus in the world. On a basic level, to be merciful means this. It means that we're not quick to take offense. We're not quick to throw others' shortcomings in their faces. And on a deeper level, we live lives of mercy and compassion, even towards those who persecute us, say hurtful things to us, or are our enemies. The merciful, does that describe the posture of your heart? Verse 8, the pure in heart. And here's the thing about this that's sad in our culture is because of the weird kind of broken, distorted purity culture that did more harm than it did good. I've heard Christians that are like, you can't even use the word purity. It's offensive. It's wrong. Purity this. uh, Don't even say that word. Hey, Jesus is calling you and I as Christians to be those who are pure in heart. What does that mean to be pure in heart? It's not just outward conformity to some law, but it's inwardly desiring to conform our whole life to what is right and good before the eyes of God. Pure in heart. Verse 9, the peacemakers. Depending on your personality, we tend to be one of two things. We tend to be peace breakers or peace fakers, right? Peace breakers or peace fakers. Uh, I tend to be a peace faker. I just want everybody to be okay at all times so that I don't have to do anything hard or have any hard conversations ever. Sadly, I'm a pastor, which means 80% of my life is hard conversations with people. But I just want to like fake it, right? Let's just fake the peace till we make it. Some of you are like, oh, that's terrible. I never do that. I love to go to the tension. You're a peace breaker, right? You're like, I just want to blow stuff up all the time. I want to just lash out and right? That's a peace break. Jesus isn't calling us to live in one of those two extremes. He's actually calling us to be people who bring the peace and reconciliation of Jesus where we go. 
There's something about our heart posture that's actually fighting for peace. Not okayness, not niceness. Those aren't values. Peace, right? This isn't some hippie command that we got in the 60s. This comes from the mouth of Jesus, and it radically shaped the way that the early church lived in the Roman world in the first 300 years. And then he mentions in verse 10 and 11, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and those who are reviled, persecuted, and slandered on Jesus' account. Now, let me explain why these matter for your life and my life today, that you understand why this is an ethic. Uh, John Tyson, in his helpful little book, A Creative Minority, says this. He says, America is in some ways a schizophrenic culture when it comes to religion and public life. Every presidential candidate is asked about their personal faith But if they ever really built policies around the Sermon on the Mount, there might be a second American Civil War. Virtually every culturally engaged Christian in America today feels that tension in our jobs, in our communities, and in the broader cultural conversation. Personal faith is welcome, but expressing our convictions or espousing ideas as truth in public is uncouth at best and often taken as coercive, intolerant, or even threatening. Here's what I want you to see. The way of Jesus in the world is not being a jerk, right? You can be persecuted and ridiculed for being a jerk, and that's just because you're a jerk, and you deserve every bit of that persecution and ridicule that you've received. But there's also a way to be the most gentle, kind, loving Christian. But if you are going to actually embrace and live out and express the teachings of Jesus, you will experience outrage from our culture. You will experience cancel. You will experience uh, some level of persecution, some level of people that are opposing you. Like we, we live in a moment where even the common good, like there's no definition of the common good. It's completely fallen apart and it's literally spinning our society into chaos. And so what's happening now is that everybody has their own definitions of what is right for them or right for me or right for you. And as long as we don't harm anybody, that's like the only common good. As long as you don't harm anybody, you do you and I'll do me. And what's sad about that is like years ago, if you were to say Jesus is the only way, that was super super offensive. Everybody be really offended at you. How dare you in 1960 to say that Jesus is the only way when there's all these options out there. Today, you don't even have to say that. All you have to say is a boy is a boy and will grow up to be a man and a a girl is a girl and will grow up to be a woman. Or here's the teachings of Jesus on sexuality or here are the teachings of Jesus on money and possessions or enemy love or whatever. And it will immediately create uncomfortableness and a level of like, how dare you, you are the problem. And if you are not okay with that, if you are not okay with not being a jerk, being loving and speaking clearly and speaking truthfully, then you're not ready to actually receive the level of outrage that's going to come your way. And Jesus is saying, this is a part of the blessed life. This is a part of what you will receive. Here's what's crazy. If you look at each one of these things on this list and you add them all together, it paints a portrait of someone that we know. And that portrait is Jesus himself. Jesus models these beatitudes with us in every way that he lived and taught in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, the faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. 
I love that. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. When these folks had gone under the water earlier today and come back out, they're saying yes to Jesus, yes to a new identity. I'm living a totally different way. These ethics are now gonna be the ethics that I'm living my life of. And what happens from this day forward, it's slow, it takes time. It's, it's like a, a man holding a yo-yo going upstairs, right? Where we go up and down, up and down, but generally we're going up. By the time 10 years, 15 years, 30 years passes, we look more and more and more like the one that we follow who is crucified. The community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. Jesus is making us look more like him in the way that we live in the world. That's what it is to have a kingdom ethic. The third and final thing I want you to see here is that these beatitudes, they're not just kingdom reversals. They're not just kingdom ethics, but they all lead to this. They are a kingdom counterculture. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, this is what we are fighting for as a church. If you want to know, what is Frontline trying to do? Well, both on Sundays and the way that we do community groups and the way that we do covenant membership, we are fighting to grow as people who are salt and light. We are growing and fighting to be people who are actually a city on a hill, people that are actually living into the way of Jesus in such a way that those in the surrounding community can say, that's different, and, and that, that, that's, that's not what I would expect, and that's what is going on there, and they're actually seeing the work of Jesus play out in our lives. Friends, salt does a couple of things. In the first century, without refrigeration, salt preserves. It preserves meat and then it also flavors stuff. And you and I as followers of Jesus have a role to play in our culture where we actually preserve our culture. We actually preserve the world around us by holding fast to the ethics of Jesus that are good for the world. And in addition to that, we have a way of living with love and grace and joy that can be a blessing to those around us where until we tell people we're Christians, we're like, these people are pretty great. <laughs> you know, until we announce it, like I am really blessed by this person, right? That's what we want with our lives is to be salty brightness, to, to actually dispel the darkness in the world, not with coercion and force and power, but with the love and mercy and truth of Jesus. This is what he's creating his people to be, a city on a hill, Salty brightness. Again, John Stott says this, the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. That's what we're fighting for. So where do we go from here? Well, friends, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I need you to, in a fresh way, as we step into July, as we step into covenant renewal, I wanna invite you to embrace the difference once again between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. 
I want you to embrace the difference again between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. Jesus is warning us here in Matthew 5 not to lose our Christian distinctiveness. And that's the temptation that you and I face on a day-to-day level is actually to lose the very thing that makes us distinct. Jesus saved us out of sin. He saved us into his church. And now he's given us a completely different identity that in a beautiful way is opposed to the world's way, in a way that contradicts it, but not in a mean way, in a way that's full of hope and joy and purpose. And you and and I are salt and we are light. And Jesus is urging and inviting us not to downplay that, not to turn that down, but to actually live in the way of Jesus in the world. And I just want to say the worst thing that could ever be said to a Christian by someone who isn't a Christian is, but you're just like me. You're just like me. I don't remember years ago, there's the Mormon commercial. I've talked about this before. The Mormon commercials that were really popular, it was like, I'm a windsurfer and I love to surf and I, I'm a normal, you know, and then at the end it's like, and I'm a Mormon. You're like, ah, I see what they're doing there. And, and then it'll do it again. I'm a, I'm a chef and I like to cook normal food that people eat and it's normal and I'm normal and I'm a Mormon. And you're like, okay, so the whole message is like, we're normal too. And I think that Christians have bought into that as a missional strategy of like, hey, we're normal too. Oh, you do that, we do that too. You think that, we think that too. Actually, what needs to happen in our moment is, is for us to say, we're different. By the grace of God, we're different. Look at our life, look at our marriage, look at our relationships, look at our singleness, look at the way we engage sexuality, look at the way we engage money and possessions and stuff, look at the way we treat our enemies. We're different. We're just different. It's not because we're better or good. Remember, we don't deserve any of this. We were the spiritually poor in spirit, and God is the one who made us alive. God is the one who made us rich in his grace. And then the last thing I'd say is, Covenant membership in a local church is the only way to live out this vision that we have. It's the only way to do what Jesus says here and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and chapter 7. And everything else the New Testament says, you need real people, not an online community. You need real people with real stories and a real face. You need the people in this room where you're saying, this is my local church. I'm committed to these people. I'm going to, I'm going to, care about their burdens. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to meet their needs. I'm going to walk with them in their story. I'm going to mourn with them when they are mourning. You need real elders that you can say, I follow these men. I'm submitted to these men. I'm I'm trusting them to care for my soul. You need real deacons that can come alongside of you and serve you and resource you and help you in your need. You need a real church and you need to actually really belong to that church, not just showing up on a Sunday, not even just showing up to a community group, but living life on life together so that you can be formed into the way of Jesus. That's what we are fighting for, to love God, love people, and push back darkness. As we multiply these gospel communities, that is what we are fighting for. And if you can't do that here as a Christian, you need to find somewhere where you can do it, and we wanna help you with that. But you have to have a real church, amen? This is what we're doing in July. Coming up, you'll hear us talk more about this, but I just wanna invite you to, as you do this renewal process, don't just like fill out the form but renew your devotion to the way of Jesus. Renew your devotion to the church of Jesus. Renew your devotion in every sense of the word. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're honored by your presence. We love that you're with us, and hopefully you'll see that this is really what it is to be a Christian. It's not believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. To be a Christian is to say, I want to 
place my life into Jesus. I want to submit to Jesus as Lord. I'm going to allow him to define what is right and wrong and good and evil. And I'm going to be shaped by his imagination and his vision more than the world's. That's what it is to be a Christian. If you've got questions about that, we would love to process that with you. Would you stand with me? As followers of Jesus, we're going to take this meal. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we don't ever want to shame you or embarrass you. Uh, we'd ask you to just stay where you're at. Don't come and receive the bread and the wine because this is a faith meal. This is for people who have trusted and repented. There's going to be some prayers up on the screen that you might be able to pray along as we're taking this meal. Or maybe you want to set up a coffee with us and, and talk in person. We'd love to do that. Um, but if you are a baptized follower of Jesus that has placed your faith, your hope in Jesus, then this meal is for you. And I want to just invite you to remember not just the first part of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, but the second part. I want you to remember what is also true of you because his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. Listen to what is true of you. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. You shall be comforted. You shall inherit the earth. You shall be satisfied. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God. You shall be called sons and daughters of God. Hey friends, guess what? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And so with those blessings ringing in your ear, I want to invite you to come and receive the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for you. We'll get in groups and then we'll send you out after you take this meal.